The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the programme. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this Tuesday morning. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss apologises for the mini-budget market mayhem. After new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt rips up the bulk of her economic plan in an humiliating walkback for the British leader. I recognise we have made mistakes. I'm sorry uh, for those mistakes, but I fixed the mistakes. U.S. markets snap back, pushing sharply higher as tech stocks recover, the Nasdaq posting its best day since late July. Uh, Bank of America shares uh, pop after the lender posts a smaller-than-expected drop in third-quarter profit on the back of rising income. Uh, Interest income. The CEO, Brian Moynihan, telling CNBC consumer spending remains robust. Good news is the consumers and the and the commercial activity still remains very solid deep into the uh, deep in the post-pandemic era. And Credit Suisse reportedly looks to the Middle East to raise fresh funds for its investment banking unit, with Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth funds said to be weighing a capital injection. Meanwhile, China's state banks reportedly step in to prompt up the yuan during the pivotal party congress after Beijing delays the release of potentially embarrassing economic data. So let's kick off the program with a look at earnings, uh, this time from the pharmaceutical business Roche, the uh, company coming through and reconfirming its outlook for 2022. So there's a a tick of the box on that one. Core earnings per share targeted to grow at low to mid single digit range at constant uh, exchange rates. The group uh, telling us that sales in the diagnostic division up 6%. Uh, The base business remaining strong, as expected. Demand for COVID-19 tests, though, sharply down in the third quarter as the world is coming to terms with this disease. The pharmaceuticals division, uh, seen at the previous year's level with significantly lower sales of COVID-19-related products here. The uh, company telling us... um, What else have we got for you? Uh, The... Uh, company reporting group sales up 2% for the third quarter at constant exchange rates and 1% in Swiss francs as expected. Significantly lower COVID-19 related sales though in both divisions for the third quarter. It's a question of what you got guys. Well, good morning Karen. Good morning. Good morning Jeffrey. Good morning. Are we feeling sprightly on a Tuesday? Of course. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that was as sprightly as I get. I have to say, it's yeah. all downhill from now. But, but, but I think it's a question of what you got. 
What have you got post-COVID? Because let's go back to our knitting. The world had a very sophisticated outlook on the various pharmaceutical companies and what they were doing with their consumer side of the business and what they were doing with their oncology units. But but now it's kind of like post-COVID, what have you got? And actually, uh, Novartis and Roche and Pfizer, very interesting looking at diverging fortunes and diverging valuations. If I said to you that one of those three trades at a significant premium to the other two, well, if I said to myself, without looking, I would have gone Pfizer every time because I always think the U.S. stocks in most categories trade at a premium to their European peers uh, on a like-for-like -like basis. But actually, in this case, it's not the case. Pfizer, for instance, trades on eight times forward. Novartis trades on 12 times forward. But this one that we're talking about today, Roche actually trades at a premium at 15 and a half times forward. Now, we can look at their, the share price move on Roche as well. And actually, it's been really, in fact, that's a really good chart because it's actually really dark what it's done uh, since it had its decline from its highs like a lot of stocks they had their declines in the spring in April it was trading just under 400 uh, Swissy uh, then it fell down to a range which is somewhere in the region of where it is now 300 Swissy to 330 335 as well so the question is is there enough in this stock announcement today to get it out of that range it's been stuck in since the summer mm. it's quite a futuristic business isn't it in some ways you've got to try and anticipate what's around the corner if you think about COVID-19 clearly a drop in the earnings because we've moved forward but if you look at a recent announcement uh, of the past few sessions they have uh, announced the launch of the next generation of COVID-19 tests so we're telling you that we might not be out of COVID yet so they still have to plan for the potential um, you know eventuality that we may end up back in some sort of COVID testing situation at least in some nations I mean China's still testing in the West is testing going to be an answer to try and keep uh, the doors open during the winter so I think that's interesting still buried in the numbers the other point here is anticipating the other um, major disease, diseases we contend with and clearly eye disease vision loss is a massive one we've got kids now with dry eyes for instance uh, elderly people who are using more screens as well vision loss is a, is a massive issue and they're spending a lot of money I think uh, going down that pathway look, look, I, I, know, I know we've come through COVID but I'll say something I said right at the start of COVID COVID will never kill as many people as the big diseases on the planet I, I said it I, and yes it's been a terrible pandemic and there's been lots of people with ramifications from it and we don't know the full ramifications of COVID but, but COVID ain't the biggest disease on the planet by a long shot and has never been the biggest disease or cause of death on the planet by a long shot and we all know the three biggest killers on the planet and they're all Western diseases because of our lifestyles apart from, uh, amongst other things. They are down, it's, it's about strokes, it's about heart disease, it's about cancers, it's about um, our, our um, insulin problems, diabetes as well. These will always be the biggest killers on the planet. In fact, I've got backup from the WHO here. Uh, heart disease, by long shot, the biggest killer on the planet. Strokes, uh, COPD, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases, lower respiratory infections, neonatal conditions coming in at number four, Five, trachea, bronchius, and lung cancers coming in at number six. So I hear what you're saying about COVID. COVID was an existential shock to the planet, but it was never ever, and as I said at the start of COVID, it was never ever going to be unless we had a combination of uh, Ebola mortality rates uh, with common cold um, uh, contagion rates as well. It was never going to be the same. Now, is there going to be a disease which could combine those and terrifyingly so? Well, maybe. Maybe the world is better prepared. But what I'm saying, going back to this, is these pharma companies have bread and butter illnesses which will always be bigger cash cows for them. Just very briefly, everybody loves healthcare stocks for the recession-proof play. 
the problem you've got at the moment is the point you made right at the beginning, which is a lot of these businesses are coming off the back of very different, diff difficult comps mm. because what they had was that real bumper boost that came as a result of being involved in treating COVID and either being in the diagnostics end or being in the vaccine end or even somewhere in the middle. Mm. The problem is that that was two years ago. Yeah and now or or even 18 months a year ago and now you've got the comps with where we are at the moment and obviously we've seen that in the Roche numbers here but I have to say you know even as you look at the performance and it's been rather ho-hum for a lot of this year everybody's got them penciled in as the place to go if actually economic con conditions get worse from here let me just point out the CEO Severin Schwan will join us to discuss the earnings it is a first on CNBC or, or at 10 past 8 central european time oh that music <laughs> <laughs> it tells you we're going to talk about the dreary old British politics. Now, it's not dreary. It's actually very exciting. But my goodness me, what a circus. Uh, UK Chancellor Exchequer, I mean, let me just, yeah, still Jeremy Hunt, uh, has scrapped almost every part of Prime Minister Liz Truss's mini-budget. Let's get back to that. Every single bit of it, virtually, apart from the bits that were already in motion parliamentary-wise. Uh, three weeks after it was announced, in a bid to plug a budget shortfall reportedly as high as £52 billion, Sterling gained as Mr Hunt made the unprecedented policy U-turn. Planned cuts to income tax have been dropped with the reduction in the basic rate delayed indefinitely. Uh, Truss's flagship two-year energy support scheme, yeah, that's been scrapped. It's going to end in April now. Uh, and alcohol duty will no longer be frozen. The Treasury estimates that uh, these cuts will recoup around £32 billion. Chancellor Hunt also laid the groundwork for further changes to tax and spending. This government will take the difficult decisions necessary to ensure there is trust and confidence in our national finances. That means decisions of eye-watering difficulty. But I give the House and the public this assurance, every single one of those decisions, whether reductions in spending or increases in tax, will be shaped through core, compassionate, conservative values. The Bank of England, meanwhile, will reportedly delay billions of pounds in gilt sales in an attempt to assure up stability after the mini-budget. Top central bank officials formed the view after watching the recent turmoil in gilt markets, according to the Financial Times. The bank had already postponed QT until the end of the month from the 6th of October. A hunt reversal piles pressure on Prime Minister Truss after a weekend of speculation over her position and as lawmakers from her own party begin to call for her to go. In her first public statement since sacking Kwasi Kwarteng on Friday, Truss issued an apology for how the mini-budget was handled. I recognise we have made mistakes. I'm sorry uh, for those mistakes, but I fixed the mistakes. I've appointed a new Chancellor. Uh, we have restored economic stability and fiscal discipline. And what I now want to do is go on and deliver for the public. We were elected on the 2019 manifesto. I'm determined to deliver on that, levelling up, securing investment into all parts of our country, getting roads built, getting opportunities right across the nation. And that's what I'm thinking about. And that's why I'm focused on. Sorry, that's fascinating what she just said there. Sorry to butt in. But, but she said we were elected on the 29 manifesto. That is palpably not the case. 
She, Boris Johnson, was elected on the 2019 manifesto. She was elected as prime minister on her 2022 manifesto. So that is a complete volte face uh, from the prime minister. Boris Johnson and the Conservatives were elected on the 2019 manifesto. She was elected on the basis of her fantasy land economic promises that she made in 2022. Well, she can't just get out of that. Elected is a generous word she in this context. She was elected by the Conservative she was elected Party. by a very small community. 140,000 people. Exactly. I mean, you can't say that was a national mandate for but this she policy, was, She'd was ripped up the national mandate policy from 2019. Let's not, let's not let her get away with reinventing history of the last six months. Are you taking issue with the sorry, too? I mean, the use well, of the apology across no, well, the board. Well, only because you couldn't move yesterday for top Tory politicians saying sorry. Uh, Penny Mordaunt came, had to come to the... Actually, Liz Truss should have come to the House, but she didn't because she sent a, a deputy. She didn't have to in the strict letter of law. So she sent Penny Mordaunt, who's the leader of the House, uh, to the House uh, to answer the urgent question posed by Sir Keir Starmer, which Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House, had let her have. And you couldn't move for Penny Mordaunt saying sorry three times, I counted, before the end of the questioning. She kept saying, sorry, yeah, we're sorry, we're, we're really sorry. Uh, by the way, we're really sorry. Uh, and then Jeremy, Trump, uh, Jeremy Hunt got up uh, and, and he kept saying, sorry, yeah, sorry, we're changing this. Uh, and then she doesn't, she wouldn't say a word in the House, by the way. She just sat there, rictus grin. It's uh, a legitimate we get corporate to comms strategy, you know, to say sorry and apologise to Fessa. Uh, well, according to a new poll, Liz Truss's Conservative Party now trails the opposition Labour Party by 36%, the largest lead for any party with any British polling company since October 1997 and higher than Labour's entire vote share at the 2019 election. Arabile is with us from Downing Street. And sorry wasn't the hardest word, was it, for those politicians to say, Arabile? <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't, Jeff. And uh, you, you made it clear then that uh, elected was certainly a kinder word to kind of use uh, for Liz Truss, of course, when she was uh, put into power then uh, just earlier this year. It was that fateful day just early September when that happened, right? But it seems that when that party elected her, that same party is now in leadership or in power, shall we say. One might be forgiven for thinking or seeing Liz Truss as being in office, but not necessarily in power at a time like this, considerably, uh, considering as well that the last time she spoke was Friday until late yesterday, where we saw that apology, of course, come through. Indeed, with the gilt markets being as they were, and now the Bank of England deciding to delay their uh, quantitative, uh, their QT program, then it kind of does give you a sense then of where exactly they feel economic stability and market stability is at at this time. Many question marks have been put forward whether Jeremy Hunt's plans and reversal almost completely of all the tax measures that were put forward in that September 23rd mini-budget are still going to help when it comes to the longer-term plan, even doing away, of course, with that energy price cap, which was the key measure, and doing away with it from April next year. Will that mean that they'll be able to save the kind of money that is necessary to remain fiscally prudent? Let's remember that when they told the Office uh, for Budget Responsibility that they will only be part of the medium-term fiscal plan and not necessarily the initial mini-budget, they still felt that they were within the realm of fiscal responsibility. But clearly, the markets completely disagreed. So yesterday, we got the sense then that that reversal by Jeremy Hunt was indeed very necessary 
In fact, the Institute for Fiscal Studies' Paul Johnson also agreed. This is a big change, an almost complete rowing back on what the previous Chancellor did just a few short weeks ago. And I think it was a change on this scale that was required, really undoing nearly all of the cuts and also looking again at the enormous energy support package. So I don't think the Chancellor could have done much more at this stage. We wait to see whether he's going to do more on the spending side in a couple of weeks' time. So the question mark now is what else can be changed? October 31st is when the rest of that medium-term fiscal plan is put forward. But does the um, Prime Minister sort of have anything else she would add before then? Or does Jeremy Hunt stand then as the Prime Minister in a way, de facto rather, uh, in a time when you can see that the leadership has completely altered somewhat and it doesn't necessarily look as clear as day as to who is leading the party? Arabile, thank you very much for bringing us an update there. Uh, let's get to John Day, who is a global bond portfolio manager at Newton Investment Management, BNY Mellon. John, let me ask you about one of the other major players here that we haven't mentioned yet, and that's the central bank, because uh, some reports have been crossing in the FT this morning that they will not continue on with the QT purchases that they had slated for the end of the month now, uh, the quantitative tightening program. Just give us a sense as to the implications here as the central bank is talking about distress in the gilt market. Yeah, morning all. Um, yeah, it, it, they're in a very, very difficult place because... Um, obviously, the guilt market we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Um, leverage has been a big, big part to play in, in the volatility and the uncertainty. Um, and so, even what you've been talking about this morning, the politics are still still uncertain. Uh, what's happening next? Um, in terms of guilt insurance going forward, we're still at the risk of energy prices, the energy market. We still don't quite know what the deficit's going to be over the next couple of months. Um, so, so the Bank of England is still a very, very difficult place. But the, the biggest issue the Bank of England have got, um, and I'm still not sure they're 100% aware of this, is how sticky inflation might be. Um, so I've seen very recently the labour market's very, very tight. Uh, wages are running over 5% year on year. Um, headline inflation is obviously 10%. But I think more importantly for me is what's looking, what we're looking at underlying inflation, the core inflation or or services inflation, which is also running at nigh on 6% year on year. So the, the, these numbers are much, much larger than the, the 2% target the Bank of England are aiming for. So it's, they're in a very, very difficult spot. Um, I don't envy them at all. Uh, John, you've given us a long laundry uh, list of issues there, but uh, just give us a sense as to whether you think we're through the worst of it now. In terms of volatility, yes. Uh, have we hit the yield highs in the UK? I'm not so sure about that. And that's, that's just because of where inflation is and where inflation may settle in the future. But I think what we certainly have in terms of the kind of the big moves in yields, I think that for the intraday moves in yields, that is behind us. And the Bank of England now are, are aware of the problems. And also, even, even a couple of weeks ago when they stepped in, they were pretty quick. Um, if I was a couple of days, they really stepped in. When they did step in, they stepped in hard. So that is, that is, that is, that is impressive. That, 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 that is reassuring. John, um, it's fascinating. The gilt market over the last week, it's, it's been like a day trader's treat, hasn't it? And just looking at that bounce we had yesterday in prices, uh, I, I was certainly talking to people who were getting excited about the idea that you might make a reasonably quick turn just playing the gilt price. 
What do you think happens from here on in? Do we see the volatility settle down? And ultimately, you've said you don't think yields have peaked yet. Where do you think they may peak? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult uh, thing to look at. But I'd say, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm as, as an international investor, I'm, I'm looking relative to other countries as well. And gilt yields are still, I would say, lower than other other countries similar kind of characteristics. So the guilt yields have got back to where US levels are just, just shy of 4%. Um, but overseas, we've got, I mean, obviously a smaller market, but New, New Zealand uh, bonds kind of 4.5%. They announced very high inflation overnight as well. Um, so you could easily see guilt yields edging back towards 45 even perhaps 5%, until inflation is tackled. Um, and that's the key thing. There will come a point when inflation does peak, uh, interest rates are enough, and that's when we'll start seeing the, the big, the big declines in yields, and that's when we will get the big capital appreciation. John, as you as you look at the um, the, the Japanese um, sovereign bond market, there's barely any trade these days. It, it seems like the, the the Japanese central bank has done a well terrific job, in their own opinion, I would imagine, of managing the yield curve. It, it almost feels like we're all heading in that direction at some stage, given how indebted. Uh, many Western countries are. What does that leave on the table in terms of the real opportunity for a global bond portfolio manager like yourself? There's lots of opportunities. The one thing, and this is where Japan, this is one of the reasons why the yen has been so weak, is that inflation dynamics in Japan are very, very different to the rest of the world. Um, where, yes, there are some inflationary pressure in Japan, but just they do, they're bearing in very insignificant compared to, say, almost every other country. Um, so that does allow the Bank of Japan to to behave as they have done, kind of controlling yields, um, massive QE still. Um, for the rest of the world, this this, the, this is the big challenge. Back to, back to the Bank of England and the central banks, um, they haven't got the same luxury they have had for the ten to last 10, 15 years of being able to cut rates or do QE because of inflation. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of bonds around, as we've already talked about in the UK. Yes, issue is going to be less now, but it's still going to be significant over the next couple of months. And when QT does eventually start, net issuance will go up even more. So there's going to be lots of bonds around, and every country is dealing with their issues a slightly different way. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities. And the one, the one big thing um, that they haven't touched on is that actually in gilts and in other markets as well, can actually get a positive real yield now again. Um, so we'll actually get a return plus inflation if you buy inflation linked bonds. Um, so there are lots of returns to have from bonds. It's the first time, actually, for say since recent the financial crisis, that actually bonds have been an attractive standalone investor in, investment. Sorry, in, in, in the longer term. Uh, John, uh, good morning to you. What, 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 what's happened to all the geniuses who are t- putting yeah. uh, bonds in my portfolio and your portfolio and your pension, or God knows no else, when it was point one, and now the ones are having to sell it because of their margin calls? Are these geniuses coming back into the market and picking up four, four and a half percent ten-year paper? I think mean, actually, yes and no. I think it's different. It's different geniuses. I mean, this is the most. It's the most interesting thing. I think on our desk, I don't think anybody's asked us about how to buy a guilt in the last kind of 10, 15 years. In the last 10, 15 days, everybody's been coming around to my desk and our desk to ask about how to buy guilts. Because suddenly, I say guilts suddenly had yield. I mean, a two-year two yield above four percent. That's that's an attractive investment again. Um, so I mean, that's the thing that there are buyers at, especially domestically. Um, so, and also, just as you said, actually, for the last couple of years, they haven't been a good investment in the portfolio. But suddenly now, let's say we do hit a recession, those guilt yields are not going to be hit, not going to be four percent anymore. They're probably going to be down at three, two, 
Um, and they're, gonna, they're really gonna, gonna work as an insurance product in an overall portfolio. So this is the time to start kind of rebalancing that portfolio back to a nice balance kind of equity, equity bond, um, bond combination. John, good to see you. Thanks very much for, for being with us and, and good to hear that you're popular once again say. on the trading floor. <laughs> that they want to come and find him. Yeah, but they've got to try and find him in Shropshire, though. <laughs> <laughs> in the big it's Newton investment trading here. floor in Shropshire. Is that in the pub? Uh, no, 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 no. It's my house. But no, the pub's later. <laughs> Cheers, John. Drinking on a Tuesday. That's bold. Uh, I, can, I can see his Christmas card list is going to be longer this year. You know, all those people reaching out to him. John Day, Global Bond Portfolio Manager sure, at Newton desks? Investment Management at BNY Mellon. I, I mean, what are the desks that are kind of, you know, abandoned? No one comes over to your area of the trading floor unless right. something really tasty happens as well. Yeah. I've had a bit of that in my life. Yes. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll not dwell on that. Um, there's obviously been some scarring. Um, let's have a look at the, uh, the Roche numbers then. Uh, return to the figures, just because we've had a correction put out. Not sure if this is Roche that um, got the figures wrong or whether it was um, Reuters that got the, uh, the figures wrong here. But just to make clear to you that the group sales up 2% at constant exchange rates and 1% in Swiss francs was for the nine-month period, not the third quarter. Um, significantly lower COVID-19 related sales in both divisions in the third quarter. We were talking a lot about the year-on-year um, -year comparison and how uh, a lot of this um, COVID-related uh, product is now beginning to uh, wash out of the growth side of the business here. Um, so just to be clear here, the numbers as stated were for the nine month and not for the third quarter, specifically same as far as the uh, uh, diagnostic division and that increase of 6%. You know I'm argumentative. No. Genuinely. No. Yeah, it's true. You surprise yeah. us. No, 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 it's That's true. That's a surprise, Karen, isn't it? I had no idea. I, I'm now going to argue with my own teeth. <laughs> it says here, coming up on the show, inflation fails to sap the strength out of the US consumers. Bank of America tops expectations for the third quarter. We have the latest at the break. But, 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 but the numbers on the consumer were so strong because they were using their debit and credit cards a lot more. So is inflation sapping the strength? I'm finding I'm debating with myself heartily. It's meant to be a tease, uh, not a debate. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh. Anyway, we'll come back and I'll pick that for you. But on the um, numbers that you've been watching closely on the economy, don't forget uh, we are covering the UK budget backtracking. Be sure to subscribe to the Squawkbox podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Look at that, ladies and gentlemen, that is a big, big rally. I tell you, it's, it's so big, even Innovation, the ARK fund there, rallied about 7% yesterday. That's how good the markets were yesterday. NASDAQ up 3.4%, S&P up 2.7%, the Dow putting on 550 points. Uh, Microsoft 
uh, was one of the big factors to the upside in the Dow, 59 points of that, Amazon 49 points uh, of the, the NASDAQ rally as well. Let's have a look at the NASDAQ, show the intraday as well. There you go. Um, bit of oscillation at the start of the session and then got to a level where it was very, very comfortable. Uh, just a couple of points. Why did we rally yesterday? Well, I've seen one or two reasons. I'll give you three. Uh, one, I think some of the numbers were quite good, like the Bank of America, which uh, I think we're going to talk about in a few moments' time. Uh, two, of course, the panic went out of the gilt market on the back of the complete uh, vault fuss uh, from the British government. I mean, humiliating climb down from Liz Truss's government there as well. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, call him many things, but he's a steady hand on the till. A lot of people don't like... Uh, what he did when he was the health secretary or the foreign secretary, and I heard of some of those criticisms from the opposition bench yesterday, but he looks like a steady hand at the tiller at the moment, gone back to economic orthodoxy, as they say. Uh, and the third reason, which I haven't seen a lot about, is the fact that the data was really average yesterday. The Empire State was weak. Weak data in the US, hopefully for many people out there, means lesser uh, increases on interest rates. But we're still banking, what, a 75 and a 50 this year? Could be a 75 and a 75, couldn't it? Let's have a look at the Asian indices and where they are currently trading. Uh, green across the screen, the Shanghai Composite up 0.2%. That aside, solid, solid gains across the board, including over in Australia. Opening calls for European markets. Well, where are we? There we go. FTSE's looking at uh, towards 7,000 yet again, having dipped to a 67 handle, I think, at its lows of the last week. Zetradax uh, getting close to 13,000. Kakaron, 6,100. And the FTSE MIB over in Italy, where they're just putting the uh, touches of this uh, government together 21,500 give or take the change u.s futures look like this we are called wow look at that on the dow another 431 points nasdaq another 200 points so the bulls have got the bit between their teeth at the moment now i know you want to talk about bank of america but let's just set the scene first uh, shares of bank of america closed higher after the lender reported third quarter profit and revenue that topped wall street expectations the group posted $24.6 billion in revenue and a 24% jump in net interest income on the back of rising rates. However, its investment banking business struggled in the quarter with fees down 46% as recession fears prevented firms from closing deals. The CEO Brian Moynihan told CNBC that the bank's consumers remain financially resilient despite economic pressures and higher inflation. The rate structure's there because inflation's not gone too far and they can't get under control. You know, that, that has other issues in the balance sheet, so you've got to be careful what you wish for in the world that we're in in financial services. So our job is to meet anything, be prepared for everything. But the good news is the consumers and the, and, and the commercial activity still remains very solid deep into the, uh, the post-pandemic era. Um, it says on my prompt we're going to Goldman's, but let's carry on in Bank of America. Um, the, the point I was making before the break, right. uh, it said about the consumer strength. And, and, and again, I, I was tussling with this in my own head. So I think the market's tussling with, is it strength in the consumer um, division representing strength of the consumer? Or actually, is it weakness of the consumer, which is actually falling into a sweet spot for the banks? And I think they are potentially two very different things. I'll just explain that very quickly as well. Uh, you saw a big increase in spending, 9% in the quarter, up on spending on debit cards and on credit cards. And we all know, we've all seen it, wherever we are in the world, if you keep your balance on your credit card, A, it's probably one of the most inefficient ways to borrow on the planet as well. Uh, the interest rates are absolutely enormous, but the banks love the margin. Well, who took out a, a credit card over the last uh, two years? Who thought it was necessary to get an additional piece of plastic because... 
it was you know it was possible to do so i think people get a credit card when they need it don't they isn't that why you get a credit card so all those you know flush with savings pandemic savings you've got a job uh, you've got the ability to negotiate with employers who had higher wages was that really the condition when you went and took out another credit card or is it now when things have tightened just a little bit i I think there's a positive wealth effect i mean if you if you look at i mean this is why i think that people still think there is an opportunity to buy in this equity market because we are in a world where everybody is trying to understand how a once in a lifetime event may have changed the economic trajectory of this potential recession. And that's the issue here. Is there going to be a recession? Is there going to be a recession where people lose their job? When people lose their job, they stop spending. If they still have a job and they can pay their credit cards off or they can at least make the interest payments and they feel that they are better off because they have a little bit of savings and they also have positive equity in their property, you get a positive wealth effect. The risk of course is if that wealth effect goes negative, then immediately that's when we need to worry about recession. Uh, I'll just say very briefly, uh, the median credit card interest rate for all credit cards, this is according to Investopedia database, rose to 21.6% in October 2022. That seems low. That's the median. Some of them. I know, you're right. There's 30 odd plus, isn't there? there? In fact, 40 odd plus, I've seen one. It's a dangerous way to borrow. Uh, Goldman Sachs shares lagged sector gains after reports the US bank is planning to announce a major restructuring alongside its third quarter earnings today. The Wall Street Journal has reported that the bank will fold its biggest businesses into three divisions, combining its IB and trading businesses into one unit. A Goldman Sachs spokesperson declined to comment. Uh, on, on a programming note, Goldman Sachs' CEO, David Solomon, will be speaking exclusively to CNBC later today. Do not miss that interview at 13.30 CET. Credit Suisse has reportedly approached at least one Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund for a fresh capital injection. Both Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia are considering whether to put money into the Swiss lender, according to sources speaking with Bloomberg. A spokesperson for the bank declined to give a comment to CNBC, repeating that the lender will update investors on its strategic review when it announces third quarter results. That'll be next Thursday, not this Thursday, next Thursday. Separately, Credit Suisse's investment bank chief Christian Meisner is reportedly set to leave the company in coming weeks amid a broad overhaul of the group. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.